Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 83. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Professor Tim Evans. He is Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London and has been ranked by City AM as one of the UK's top 75 economic and financial thinkers. He is Chief Executive of the Cobden Centre. His bio is fascinating, which he tells us about on the podcast. This podcast was recorded on the 1st of December. I'd like to do a shout out to Joe Harris and his very lovely girlfriend, Sarah Frolic. Hope you're listening in the car. Welcome to the show, Professor Evans. Thank you very much indeed. So, Tim, um, tell us a bit about your, yourself and your, your, your route to where you are now. Well, um, I grew up in central London. I, <clears throat> I was actually born in Westminster Hospital. It used to be on the Horse Free Road, so I kind of landed 1965 um, very close to Parliament. Um, as, a, as a youngster, as a kid, I was very interested in politics uh, and, dare I say, economics and, you know, issues like the Cold War. So I think by the time I was eight, um, I was, my favourite TV programme was was Panorama. Um, and as I went through my secondary school, I went to school in central London, my fascination for politics, economics, sociology, all those subjects just grew and grew and grew. And, and that quirky youngster... Um, then briefly worked in in, 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 in in the world of defense and security and civil, civil society. I worked for a range of institutions like the Foundation for Defense Studies. And then I moved, um, well, I, I was always a free marketeer. I was very skeptical of, you know, things like German national socialism, which my grandfather had fought, um, and of course, communism. And um, I think I was... I, I studied social science, I studied sociology, political sociology, but very much always interested in the economistic end of that. So I was at university, I studied, studied economics. And then in the very early 90s, I was finishing my master's, starting my PhD at the London School of Economics. And I also had a job uh, at the Adam Smith Institute um, as head of comms there as the press guy there and a senior policy researcher and then somewhere out of the blue I was headhunted by the well the guy who very quickly became the Slovak prime minister and so I moved to Bratislava the Slovak capital in 1991 I arrived there before the Gorbachev coup of August that year and I became head of the prime minister's policy unit and I started um, to help along with the PM, four deputy prime ministers and the cabinet, uh, to take Slovakia through, you know, from some semblance of, you know, of, of Stalinism and socialism to some semblance of, of, of free market and democracy and, and a more open economy where people had basic human rights and could travel. So that was really interesting. And then I came back and for nine years, I was the public affairs chief for the UK's independent health and social care sector, which is in incredibly diverse sector and for my sins I represented everyone from the National Union of Mine Workers, remember them, their convalescent homes that were in the independent sector to the Salvation Army, to Booper, to Nuffield, 
to great institutions like the Royal Hospital for Neurodisability um, and lots of thousands of nursing and residential care homes. A huge independent sector that straddled for-profit, not-for-profit. Some were cooperatives, mutuals. Many trade unionists get their independent health care through their trade union. Um, and I had to represent that sector for a decade. And that culminated in me doing what the Financial Times called the most historic deal in 50 years of the NHS, which I, effectively I brought the Berlin Wall down between private and public provision, and that for the first time NHS patients could receive some of their care and treatment in independent sector hospitals. We could price at the margins, often we could do a high quality job, often cheaper than the state could do itself. So it made sense for everyone, not least those NHS funded patients. Uh, and then after nine years and having done that deal, I moved to Belgium, where I was president of a, of a, of a, of a think tank in Brussels called Centre of the New Europe. And at this point, I got married and um, I had a daughter. My wife is a senior consultant nurse. And, um, and in 2014, I became professor of business and political economy at Middlesex University in North London. And I'm really honoured and, and privileged to, to be in that position. So we might as well plunge in, I guess, to the, to the politics of the day and the hour. What do you say to this idea that the, 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 put about by the Labour Party or by, by Jeremy Corbyn, that the NHS is somehow for sale? Um, I think that that, that, that mantra... Um, I think that that mantra is one that's you know it's, it's it's been well used in the past. I think this is probably the eighth election <laughs> which people have been claiming that you've got you know a day, a week, four hours, two weeks, whatever it is, to save the NHS from privatisation. You know the reality of the NHS has always been that it has been you know in some form of partnership with the independent sector. You know I, I played I played a trick recently with our wonderful health students at our, at our university. We have a hundred, we've trained, you know, thousands of nurses and uh, social workers. And I, did, I do a big annual lecture and I, I dashed into the auditorium. And I said, guys, when were the first state hospitals created? And Ham went up, 1948. I said, wrong. Everyone looked at me and I said, come on, come on. When were the first state hospitals created? And, and they didn't know. So I said, it was the Roman military, which is true. The reality is that, um, the, the, you know, you know, whether it's the lino on the floors or the hospital beds or lots of the tablets or whatever, they've all been produced privately. Um, so there's always been a degree of partnership. Scaremongering um, has, you know, been around now for decades. Um, but let's not forget that to have built the NHS, the government had to take into public ownership uh, more than 3,100 independent hospitals, homes and clinics. And many of them went back centuries here in central London. Um, the NHS took into public ownership in 1948 St. Bartholomew's Hospital, but that had been an independent hospital since 1123. Um, and, uh, you know, if we can just get a bit of altitude above the subject, a bit of maturity, stop scaremongering, there are always different public and private inputs. It's always been the case. And in the current period, we have the NHS. It's a popular institution. There are some public-private inputs. Do I really believe anyone's planning to sell it off in the next few years? No, I don't. I just don't think the electorate will wear it. I don't think it's real. Um, and I think that the danger for the Labour Party is that by scaremongering, people do have memories and the average person just won't believe it. You know, they're like, oh, they're saying that again, are they? Well, you know, yawn. 
And I think, really, if you're in opposition, you've got to come up with something slightly more plausible and slightly sexier than, dare I say it, just scaremonger on that, or, or, or what's the big idea? I don't know, nationalised part of the railways. Well, I, you need more than that, you know? But that's my take. How do you see the, the election actually panning out? What would be your prediction if you can make one, Tim? I, I, I suspect that there will be um, a conservative majority. That's my hunch. That's my, you know, that's what, that's what I feel in my waters. Um, I think that what is quite significant about that, you know, over and above anyone's position on Brexit, I think what's quite significant about that is that that it's some um, that that if the Conservatives win a majority, they're likely to be able to push through their the long-awaited boundary changes because the demographics certainly in England have changed significant over recent decades, and England has sort of at that demographic that structural level become slightly more centre-right, and it's not reflected accurately by the boundaries at the moment. The boundaries slightly favour the centre and, and, and the left. And so if the boundary changes go through, that will probably um, uh, lock in another probably 12 to 15 constituencies that would tend to vote Conservative sort of centre-right. Um, and, and what interests me always about politics are the bits that fall through the cracks. You know, I mean, for example... I don't know how well the SNP are doing in Scotland. They've been in power up there a long time. You hear lots of scare stories or, or issues with all kinds of public services, education, schools not going really up there, the NHS having some problems. Um, but actually, the Scottish government are running a deficit at the moment, if you really look at the fine print, of about 7%. And that means, and here's the, here's the odd bit, they're running probably technically the biggest deficit in Europe. Um, so even if you have, you know, Scottish nationalism continuing to rise and you've got the issue of the referendum, if, if there ever was a referendum uh, again in Scotland in, in the near future, um, how would that sit economically vis-a-vis -vis the debate around the pound, you know, uh, deficit, debt, the central bank and all the rest of it? But um, my hunch is that... Um, that two weeks from now there'll be some kind of conservative majority, workable majority. If that isn't if that isn't the case, though, what what are we in for? In other words, if we're in for either if it's a, the, the ultimate outcome is either a hung parliament or dare one say it a, 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 a sort of slim Labour majority. Um, what how would you respond to that? Well, I mean, you know, I'm only a, a fairly neutral academic. It isn't for me in a sense, to, um, to, to respond. I mean, it, it'll, it'll wash out between the public and parliament. I think, I suspect that a Labour majority at this stage is unlikely. You know, the opinion polls seem to have been fairly solid in the last month or two that the Conservatives are ahead by somewhere between, I don't know, let's say 8 and 14%. Um, and, of course, when the Conservatives start to hit 41 42% in the polls, as they're starting to do fairly consistently, then they start to get, you know, a, a fair a, a fair crack at, at a decent majority. There are no polls at the moment 
Uh, and I know all the imperfections of opinion polls, but there are no polls that are suggesting we're on for Labour majority. So, OK, that's fine. Um, yes, there are possibilities about a hung parliament, but in a sense that would just be potentially more of the treacle, wouldn't it, that, that we've lived with um, and that we've all enjoyed in recent months. So, you know, it would be more of the same um, um, or, or a clearing of the air with a, with a Tory majority. But until I see opinion polls that are suggesting likelihood of a Labour majority, um, uh, then it, it does, that doesn't seem plausible to me with less than two weeks to go. If you could start again with the National Health Service, um, you know, from grassroots, what, what would you do? How would you build it up? Well, we often make the mistake in this country of talking about the beverage report of uh, 1942 and then that Labour government of 45, and we talk about how Labour created the NHS. Actually, I'm a great believer in getting altitude in history and not simply buying the propaganda of either political tribe, but really going back through the roots of these things. So the first people who proposed the NHS were the Fabian Society, and they, I think they published a paper around 1909 uh, that really talked about a system that, 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 that came to pass. Of course, modern healthcare in the UK... Uh, started to be substantially nationalised, if I can use that polarising term, around the time of the National Insurance Act of 1911. Um, because what happened was the state started to say that we will guarantee you access to a GP and we'll guarantee you certain services um, and you're going to have to pay national insurance. And the other thing the 1911 Act did was the 1911 Act undermined the mechanisms through which the poor, uh, both people who are substantially poor and and in relative poverty, had long increasingly access to healthcare. So, 1911 Act damaged the tradition of what was called collective self-help institutions like trade union friendly societies and mutuals. Because up until that point, and and for the previous sort of 60 or 70 years ever greater numbers of, of, of working people and their families were getting access to ever better health care, mainly through the trade unions. You joined a trade union in the last half of the 19th century, not simply because you could argue you know, for a bigger pay rise at number 10 Downing Street or beer and, you know, over beer and sandwiches, but you joined your trade union because through your union, you would literally own yourself uh, your own hospital and medical facilities in which you and your family would be treated. When National Insurance came in in 1911, that really undermined that tradition of worker self-help. And one of the early things that happened was that, of course, uh, the BMA lobbied from 1911 onwards for substantial pay rises. What they wanted was to get this new tax funding, this national insurance money, um, and they wanted to also be able to keep their more lucrative, more middle-class private patients. And between 1911 and 1915, now being able to access state largesse, the average doctor in this country doubled their salary in those four years because they could get the, keep their private patients and get rid of the 
the uh, or, or you know keep the private patients, but also get a salary in effect from the government. It, that isn't when somebody somebody remarked, "I've stuffed their mouths with gold." Is it? No, that was much later in the forties. Right. But, but, but to administer the nineteen eleven National Insurance Act and what came from it, you had to create the Department of Health. It was created in nineteen nineteen, and then in nineteen twenty six, it was decreed. And people always forget this that every local authority in Britain had to set up their own local municipal public hospital. People always forget that. So just as the BBC was being created, so every local authority would create its own local free public hospital. That sector, those municipal hospitals, then further undermined that tradition of working class self-help through the Friendly Society movement, but it also undermined the great institutions of philanthropy. In London, they were people like St. Bartholomew's Hospital or Tommy's or Guy's, or the, and they were everywhere across the country. And so in a sense, what started in 1911, went through 1926, was starting to build in to our health economics um, or our, our health economy um, things which were sold to the public post-1945 as, and you'll be familiar with this and you'll chuckle, market failure. But it wasn't. There was lots of things that had been, lots of interventions had been made in the market that had led to state failure. So to answer your question very directly, and it's something I muse on and I wonder about because I'm an oddball, I wonder what had hap- would have happened if that tradition of working class self-help, particularly through the trade union movement, had not been so undermined by Lord George George and the Liberals in 1911, all the statistics suggest, all the evidence from the 1870s, the 1880s, the 1890s, and and beyond suggest that if that tradition of working class self-help had been allowed to carry on, then in effect, pretty much everyone in the working population and and what would have been covered by 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 that tradition of self-help that the trade unions and the philanthropists were on the road to really building, in effect, bottom up, a a a, a national health system, um, and that's really interesting. And, and there are echoes of this today. If anyone who's listening to this really is interested in this tradition, then go on to the go on to Google and check out. Benenden Healthcare. Benenden Hospital down in Kent serves nationally about a million people, most of whom are trade unionists. That hospital belongs to a friendly society to this day and uh, uh, and in effect when you join the scheme you have in effect a form of ownership of it. Um, I've been to that hospital when I was the public affairs director of the independent sector. I remember saying to a postman in a bed, you know, you're in an, indep- ind- you're in an independent hospital, you're in a private hospital, and you're a member of the communication workers' trade union. How do you feel about that? And he said, this isn't a private hospital. And he tapped him his chest and he, he looked at me aggressively and he said, this isn't a private hospital. I own this hospital. Mm. And I thought, ah, there speaks that 19th century and early 20th century tradition of worker self-ownership. So we talk, Tim, about public ownership, and the NHS is about public ownership. Of course, what that means is it's state ownership. 
I wonder if we've left these institutions in civil society in real worker ownership. Um, and as a professor, I regard myself a worker too, through the trade unions, how things would look so different. It's funny, while you, you, you mention this, I'm immediately struck by a book that I, I'm not sure I finished reading it, but I certainly started reading it with great enthusiasm about a year ago. It's a, a book called Coming Apart by Charles Murray, and the subtitle is The State of White America, 1960 to 2010. And I'm just going to read a very brief paragraph, hopefully, that, that well, I, I hope will resonate. A man who is holding down a menial job and thereby supporting a wife and children is doing something authentically important with his life. He should take deep satisfaction from that and be praised by his community for doing so. If that same man lives under a system that says the children of the woman he sleeps with will be taken care of, whether or not he contributes, then that status goes away. I'm not describing a theoretical outcome, but American neighbourhoods where once working at a menial job to provide for his family made a man proud and gave him status in his community, and where now it doesn't. Taking the trouble out of life strips people of major ways in which human beings look back on their lives and say, I made a difference. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I mean, I think I have lots of issues with some of the pictures that are painted in that, you know, because, of course, you know, I mean, my wife's a you know, professional woman in her own right. And there are lots of families that are being supported where the, you know, the major breadwinner or the major owner or, or you know, maybe the woman. So there are, you know, there are all kinds of there are issues with the, with some of the phraseology there. But I absolutely believe that to have a proud working life and to reap the rewards of, you know, the benefits of, of your own, the fruits of your labor, this relates very strongly to, you know, your sense of purpose, your sense of um, your self-esteem, and um, the and that the you know whereas traditionally there were all manner of institutions uh, in civil society, sort of community institutions uh, where you could connect to for all kinds of things that again fed into or bled into self-esteem. Um, I think that, that that there has been uh, a coming apart in certain ways. I found myself this weekend, you know, bemoaning um, for young people that, uh, and maybe this is a sign of my age. Um, but, you know, we, we no longer live in a country where, you know, in, 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 in my day, you know, if you were young and you were interested in politics, you join anything from young Communist League, young socialists, young conservatives, young liberals. Pe young people don't do, you don't have those institutions anymore. I don't even think there is a young conservatives today. There's a lot of sort of glue. Um, you know, it used to be young conservatives, young farmers, you know, there are institutions like scouts and cubs and all those things today basically exist, but an awful lot of uh, institutions um, that, were, that were communal. Trade unions were another example, churches, that, that, you know, there are lots of bits of fabric here that are kind of worn away, but they all played their role. And crucially, they had uh, a role in not just civil society, but also in, in the economic lifeblood of country. And they can provide all kinds of, uh, of support. Um, you know, I'm not an obsessive fan of trade unions, far from it. But when they played a really vibrant role and they knew their members and they could really target benefits and forms of welfare and forms of ownership that for their time were very innovative, I think that was incredibly valuable. Now, we are living... In, 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 in slightly more uh, atomized times where, you know, state, great state bureaucracies 
aren't great at treating people with high degrees of emotional intelligence. Why should they be? They're in business to deal with people on the basis of the uniformity of rules. Um, so, so I think there's, you know, Charles Murray is a wise man, but I do take issue sometimes with some of the phraseology and some of the I'm, 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 I'm also struck, I'm reminded of a piece by Theodore Dalrymple, um, which again I read yes. about probably a year ago, and it was, and I think he's an excellent writer. This is a guy whose his real name is Anthony Daniels, who's a former prison doctor, if people are unfamiliar with, with the name. And I think he's one of the, the best writers in English, particularly an analyst of sort of British culture and society. And I remember him pointing out, he was citing the example of, I think this may even be from a piece he wrote in which he coined the phrase, where he repeated the phrase, which I think actually goes back to Blake, which is mind-forged manacles. Yes. And mind-forged manacles are those constraints that we almost voluntarily place upon ourselves and it's all down to attitude and a state of mind and he was citing and it's all on the topic of the big state and you know the expectations by so many that the state should provide everything basically which goes back to that point about you know if 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 the if a big state is doing everything for you then what's the point of having a well, then what what's the quality of life if if everything is going to be given to you you know if there's a safe net that, that provides for absolutely everything What's the point of getting out of bed in the morning? And he cites he, he cites the example of a woman who he went to visit and she was complaining about, she lived in a council house and she was complaining about the rubbish in her back garden. And he said, well, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the issue? And he said, well, I've, I've called the council several times and I haven't done anything about it. And it was the idea that, that absolutely everything had to be done by somebody else, that people couldn't take responsibility for anything, including the, the shit in the back garden. It just... It, it, it it just it speaks to a a mindset that's actually deeply debilitating to the sort of body politic. Yeah, and I, I mean I love that phrase that you used, um, manacles of the mind. I mean, this actually doesn't just happen to people's psychology, their sense of being, their sense of self worth, all kinds of mental health issues, you know, that link to self esteem, responsibility, but the way we play with words, um, because words are. You know, I'm teasing a very fancy phrase, and I, I, I have a, a very close friend, Bruce Nicole. We talk about a weird subject, which is epistolinguistics, the way that you think about the problem of knowledge, but you're in itself locked into a language. You know, German is a very sophisticated language, and it has tremendous granular detail, and so it's super, super accurate. There are four times more words now in the English language than there were during Shakespeare's time. Um, but, no, but nobody uses any of them. <laughs> Well, 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 but but the point is that I mean one of the things that to link back to your story of the garden and, and the sense of personal responsibility, one of the things that intrigues me is the way, and here's a manacle of the mind, one of the ways in which that phrase public ownership was itself completely transformed effectively in the eighteen sixties. So if you and I were in Georgian Britain or early Victorian Britain, and we talked about public ownership in terms of welfare or housing or whatever, um, what you and I would, 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 would hear um, is that members of the public should own things, yeah? Hence back to things like the, the idea that if you join a trade union, through your trade union, you should have literal ownership over your friendly society hospital, 
you know, it, it's mutual, and you don't just put a penny in the pot of your welfare fund, your trade union welfare fund every week, but the, you then literally own the hospital or part of it in which you go to be looked after. Now, what happened by the end of the 1860s and as we move into the 1870s, and then, dare I say, at the creation of the Fabian Society in 1884, was that that phrase, public ownership, becomes transformed. And instead of it meaning ordinary members of the public through collective self-help, it becomes to be associated with state ownership. And, and today, we're still locked into that. And this is why we get all kinds of bizarre conversations you know that that actually if you were you know if you were, if you were thinking in terms of marking someone in a philosophy test or a, or a test of logic they don't make any sense so having now um handed over so much of our healthcare to this modern sense of public ownership i state ownership here's a fairly incoherent but but delightfully british sort of take on the world You'll turn on the TV, you watch someone from the British Medical Association, and in one sentence, they'll say something like this. Healthcare is so important, it should be beyond monetary consideration. That's why we, and the BMA, and doctors need a 6% pay rise. So at the start of the, you know, the conversation, you know, it's all beyond monetary consideration, and then that is then the, 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 the ethical foundation onto why they need a pay rise. Well, that completely closes down the conversation, doesn't it? Because then anything goes. Exactly. And, and, and you live in, it's a bit like the song, anything goes, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but when you take phrases like public ownership and you tear them away from actual ownership by members of the public to, meet, to mean something slightly different, like you know, the circulating elites, be they Tory, Liberal, Labour, whoever whoever wins at the dispatch box of the House of Commons, that somehow they're in charge of it, then you're involved ultimately in, in a fairly elitist project. And, 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 you know, and radicals and very early socialists of the 1840s, they knew this. You tell someone in 1840 that, um, that somehow state elites... Uh, should be put in charge of of their institutions, and and they wouldn't have a bar of it. That's the point. It's funny that you mentioned the sort of the, the twisting of, of of or distortion of language. The the most interesting um, email exchange I've ever had was was a, a sort of stand, what I would term almost a stand up fight with Martin Wolf of the FT about a decade ago, and we were talking about we were arguing about the nature of money, and. Um, he quoted in one of his responses um, a Latin phrase, salus re publicae suprema lex, which he then translated as the safety of the state is the supreme law. But that's a very status perspective because I think other people would translate it as the safety of the public is the supreme law. And there's a big difference. Big difference. And, and that was something that, 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 that really we understood. And interestingly, um, it was something that the early Labour Party and the early Labour movement uh, understood and really, when the Liberals introduced the 1911 National Insurance Act, and then when we went up to the general strike of 1926, as the sort of statist left, be they the Marxists or the middle class Fabians, um, as they won ever more sort of you know intellectual applause, so 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 
that skepticism of of the state, which was always traditionally seen as an inherently elite project, well, that side of the argument slightly faded. Um, and, um, well, as they say, the rest is history. But what's important about all of that, that is the backdrop to so much of the modern discourse we have in politics. And it's also, uh, very sadly, the history that we tend not to teach young people. I do. I do my best. But we tend not to teach young people, for example, you know, uh, when, when we talk about the early NHS. To a lot of people, including most people who work in the NHS, most doctors, nurses, somehow, you know, British healthcare almost arrived in 1948-9 as if landed on a UFO. As if no one ever got ill before then, there was no provision for them. <laughs> and there's almost this sort of um, Dickensian impression that before that, that everyone was dying in the streets. Well, yeah. you know, actually, the truth is that Britain has a very, very proud uh, medical and health history, um, you know, that in the modern world goes back many, many centuries. How would you compare it to the American system then? I mean, would you say our system should be more like theirs, just private health care? Well, again, you're falling into a, a, an appalling trap. Uh, let me come sure, on, come I'm, on, Paul, I'm sort sure it I, out. I'm sure I am. That's that's exactly. I'm sure there will be people listening who will fall fall into that trap, which is why why I pose the question. Yeah. So, um, and you know, I think it was all of those talked about people who control the past, you know, control the present, and all the rest of it. So you've got to be very careful here. So um, here's some interesting facts. So for for a long time now. Um, the United States uh, has had its own state healthcare sectors. The US, way back, um, in fact, to the year that I was born, 1965, they have Medicare for the elderly. They have Medicaid, which is their version of the NHS. They have a thing called SCHIP, which is more recent for children. They have the veterans healthcare schemes for former military. And, and here's the shock for you, Paul. If you look at the UK's GDP spend on the NHS, it is X percent. If you look at the United States state expenditure on their state services, they spend a higher proportion of US GDP on their state sector than we do on the NHS. So when you say, um, when you try to paint this picture that the United States is all private, that is simply not true. No, that's that's not quite what I what I said. To be fair, I, I just said, do you think their system is their private healthcare system is better than our NHS? So no, um, I don't. So then, so that so first of all, my first point is they too have an enormous state healthcare sector. Then secondly, when you look at their private sector, um, it is a catastrophe. Uh, and one of the problems is if you live in California. Um, you're locked into the private healthcare schemes that you can, you know, the insurance schemes that you can buy there. But if if there's a, a much better deal and a much better company and a much better brand, and you want to have your independent healthcare from, let's say, someone in Ohio, because they're based over there, you're not allowed. Imagine, and this is the way to inv- imagine it. Imagine you lived in Hampshire, and imagine that Booper was a Hampshire scheme. But imagine that up the road you know, in Wiltshire, they had AXA PPP and that you really wanted to join their scheme. Well, they're out of county 
or out of state, you're not allowed to do it. So, and another factor is the U.S. system of tort law. Doctors in America, be they public or private, have to spend an absolute fortune um, on insurance, and I mean ludicrous sums, uh, because of the whole setup of tort law and people suing each other. If you actually liberalize from the supply side, uh, the insurance market made it much more competitive in the U.S., and did what uh, Bush, you know, what W claimed he was going to do and actually significantly reform tort law, then you bring the costs down. There are many, many other examples. But the sad truth is um, that the, there are many, many health systems around the world which all have strengths and weaknesses. The Singaporeans have a system based on uh, health um, on, 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 on health um, savings accounts where you have to put a little bit of money in the pot uh, towards your health um, uh, and but you know it, 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 it's quite a competitive market and we spend it and if you don't ultimately spend the pot then I think there's an opportunity um, that they're discussing about that becoming part of your pension fund the Swiss have an interesting model the Swedes do things interestingly we get a lot of things right but what we're incapable of doing and by the way this is a truth around the world there's a very very bizarre attitude that goes with every health system. People in the modern world might describe themselves as loving their country or being patriotic, but they would never want to talk about nationalism. But what happens is when you talk about healthcare, everybody around the world, I think, becomes suddenly bizarrely nationalistic. Um, the Canadians will tell you they've got it right, they've got the best system in the world. Most of the Americans will say they've got a great system. The Brits say the NHS is the best in the world. And we all do it. The Singaporeans will say it. Everyone does it. And this makes us all incapable of actually looking above the parapet and trying to learn from each other. We don't do this in other areas. We, you know, we, whether it comes to entertainment or car design, we're all happy to look around. But there's something very, very peculiar about health systems where we all puff out our chest. We all say they're the best in the world. And we all seem incapable of learning from each other. I think that the NHS could be improved. I think that we could look at the Singaporean model. I think, I think we, there are some ideas around bonds and innovation that we could unleash around the NHS. But the problem with all of this, from the, from the politician's point of view, there's such a love for all these schemes uh, in all these different countries but what they say in Canada, I think, is universal truth. If you're a politician and you want to reform health, you can't because it's what they call the third rail. Touch it and you die. And, and, and I don't think that's healthy for the systems around the world. Obama tried to make some reforms in the US. George Bush before him tried to make some. Um, they often don't work out because populations and leaders – and the media are not courageous enough to really put the radar sweep on the planet and, and sometimes have really substantial, honest reviews. An awful lot of this links to producer capture, trade unions, vested interest groups, powerful, often you know, well-connected lobbies. Um, uh, uh, and often it, it revolves, of course, around money and the political economy of that money. So, um, you know, I mean, I appreciate the NHS. My wife worked in it for many, many years. Um, and there are 
been times in my life where it's helped me. Um, but do I believe it is perfect? And do I believe that it can't be reformed or improved upon? No, I think it can. And what would I like to do? I'd like to really look around the world. Uh, and I wish our political class were more open-minded and less dogmatic. So I'm, I'm with common sense on this. If you had to choose one other healthcare system around the world, not the NHS, which one would you choose? I think at the moment, and you're putting me on the spot, and I haven't thought about this for a long time, and I could be out of date, but I'm going to answer it. I think the Singaporean model is really interesting because if you need that long-term care, you know, if you have MS or whatever, the state is absolutely uh, 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 there for you, um, and it's fantastic. If you um, uh, need uh, uh, the acute care, uh, then you've got that health savings account. Uh, it is constructed in a, in a tax-advantageous way. You have a tremendous sense of the ownership of that pot, and then there is a market out there in provision. There are public and independent hospitals, and you can choose. Um, and what, what do I mean? There's healthy competition between different ownership philosophies, be it for-profit, not-for-profit, um, or, or, or public-owned. Um, and because it's just more sensible, it melds um, a, a degree of personal responsibility and a sense of, 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 kind of, sort of self-help and ownership with that knowledge that if you do get in trouble, the state will always be there for you. And if you don't have agency, if you're not able to be an, auto an autonomous you know, um, consumer, there'll be advocates there that the state will make sure you get great care right through to, but if you do have, you know, if you are able to make decisions and you have a high degree of autonomy, if you can be a real, dare I say, consumer, then you will have all the freedoms that go with that. It's that tapering across the spectrum that I think is so mature and so successful, and it works. In any population, there will always be X percent, it could be 3%, it could be more, who really, really cannot be thought of in any way, shape, or form, you know, independent, autonomous consumers uh, in, in, in the normal market sense. And, and therefore, you need institutions, collective institutions, be they you know, things like trade unions through self-help or indeed, dare I say it, the state to be there to, to help. To me, the Singaporeans have a very modern, very fresh, very open and very honest and very grounded in common sense approach. We, we had a very interesting conversation between 1911 and, and 1949. And we're locked into old ways of thinking and old structures. And it's become a bit of a theocracy. And, um, and I don't think in all of that we have to throw all manner of babies out with bathwaters. You know, someone who's heard me say that might accuse me of being some bizarre sort of privateer or whatever. No, I think we can rise above all this and have a mature, sensible conversation if we want to. I think the thing that really makes me worried is that by 2023 – not that long, the NHS will be responsible for 38% of all government spend in the United Kingdom. 38% will be going on the NHS. And my biggest fear of all is what if, there's a law in economics, we don't discuss it, it's called Gammon's Law, 
It was invented by a British GP called Max Gammon. There'll be a Wikipedia page, I'm sure, for it. What Gammon's law teaches us is it's called the theory of bureaucratic displacement. What if the more money you put into some structures, what if, if you don't reform the structures, what if those structures simply make things worse? In physics, if you've got a black hole and you feed the black hole with ever more and bigger planets, you simply end up with a bigger black hole and less light being emitted. And my great fear uh, for the NHS is that as we move into the 2020s and as it is fed, planets, you know, Jupiter's worth of more money, that it gets to a point where it gets really, really big, less light is being emitted, waiting times, waiting lists continue to go up, and then we have uh, a real crisis on our hands. And that I'm fearful of, in historic terms, for the end of the coming decade and the beginning of the 2030s. Because when you have a crisis and you make policy or policy adjustments on the basis of crisis, it's often reactive and knee-jerky in short term. You don't often get it right. Um, and when it comes down to something so important as health, you actually need to be slightly less knee-jerky and more proactive in your thinking. So that is a genuine fear I have. What, what could we do to prevent that then? Shrink, shrink the size of the state for a kickoff. Well, there's an argument, you know, that you shrink the size of the state, uh, which we might have to do, truth be told, with Brexit. You know, we might have, and Tony Blair's made this clear, and he's not wrong, that we're going to have to go for slightly more, you know, shrink the state, go for that higher growth, more dynamic, more global outlooking approach. That's one of the reasons why Tony Blair and the Social Democrats get worried about, about Brexit. So they're being honest on that. And that as you do that, have some sort of review. Um, But this is my question. It's a question to my family and people at my university and, 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 you know, to to Britain. Are people up for a mature conversation? Are they in the 2020s going to be at the point where billions and billions and billions and billions more are going into the NHS? And if the results aren't forthcoming... If the numbers don't continue to move in the right direction, you know, if if tractor production doesn't continue to rise in the appropriate way, are we as a people going to be more mature to say, to scratch our heads and say, okay, how can we do this slightly differently and then look further afield? There's a great book by Mark Britnell, by the way. Um, He's a head of healthcare. I think it's KPMG. Um, And Mark Britnell has done um, a wonderful book, which sort of looks at all the major health economies around the world, and, and he's just written two or three pages on them. He describes how they work, where they work, and where they fail. More people should read that book um, and should become au fait with the pros and cons around the world. For example, my goodness, the Israelis are light years ahead of pretty much everyone when it comes to primary care. Their philosophy is... Um, put a lot of money into GPs, get the GPs right, because the reason why people often end up very, very expensive, you know, that Monty Python sketch with machines going ping in the hospital, um, is because you often get things wrong at the front end with diagnoses and 
and results and blood tests being wrong or whatever. So they put a lot of emphasis into getting uh, the GP uh, and the primary care right. It's a really good book. If anyone's interested in this subject, um, then then look at Mark Britnell's book. If anyone's interested in the history of pre-NHS healthcare and the political economy of that, then by far the best book is by Dr. David Green, and I think it's called Working Class Patients and the Medical Establishment, subtitled something like uh, Collective Self-Help in British Healthcare up to 1948. Really, really good reads, both of them. The name of the, the Mark Brittnell book, incidentally, would appear to be In Search of the Perfect Health System. There we are. It's a, and it's a fabulous read for anyone who's prepared to, to look around the world. Have you ever been tempted to write your own book on the subject? Although you have penned many books yourself, from what I see in your bio. I've written books and all kinds of things, many subjects. Um, well, in, in this subject, slightly um, uh, above my pay grade, because my wife has a PhD in health economics, as well as being a nurse, and um, uh, she has published and written extensively on this subject. So, um, you know, if you're going to have an effective... I use an economic term, division of labour. Uh, in a marriage, um, this bit is slightly more my wife than me, although it's something I absolutely love. And, you know, it's a big privilege for me to be the director of public affairs for, 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 for the independent sector for nearly a decade because I love my history, I love my economics, and it was, it was fabulous, you know, trawling around Benedictine healthcare or learning about the history of St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, you know, you know, there's so much more to that rich tradition of health and care and medicine in Britain, dare I say it, than simply the last 70 years. Um, and there's so much more than, 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 you know, than, than the world that we see on the TV, which is purely accident and emergency or the Nightingale Ward. You know, some of the really interesting stuff is, you know, if you're, if you're in central London today, you get knocked over by a car, you may be in a coma for 10 years. Where do you go? Well, you actually, you don't invariably go to an NHS hospital. Um, no, you go to somewhere like the Royal Hospital for Neurodisability, um, which is in West Hill on Putney, which is an independent sector charity, but they're some of Britain's foremost experts in looking after you in a coma for many, many years. Um, of course, if you're a veteran and you've done you know, more than, I think it's 22 years to the colours, and you're an old soldier, maybe your wife has died, or, or now there are women in there, so maybe your husband has died, slightly hard times, you can go to the Royal Hospital in Chelsea. If you're an epileptic, you know, you suffer profoundly over the long term, there are institutions, there are a charity, you know, the Epileptic Society do a wonderful job. Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis. Um, we talk about Macmillan nursing. So much of the fabric of the nation's sort of medicine and health and social care is done in the independent sector. And that, tradi that, that, that sort of tradition of, of charitable, altruistic giving uh, and, and so many of these institutions actually, you know, predate 
the modern world, the modern, the modern 20th century world of, of healthcare. So I find it all fascinating. And it was such a privilege for me and such an intellectual delight um, to be a part of that world and to learn so much about it. To change tack just a little, yeah. have, you ever, have you ever been more uh, disappointed at the quality of political discourse and, for that matter, the, the quality of politicians in, in, in Britain today? It's clearly a loaded question, but... It is. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, the answer is, of course, you know, uh, uh, I have to be, I'm going to be, I've never said this publicly, but by far the best minister of health I ever worked with was the Labour Minister of Health, Gisela Stewart, when she was a junior minister under Tony Blair. Um, and she's a quirky lady. Some of the most interesting politicians are, in my experience, quirky. So she is the only, she was the only German member of the British Parliament, daughter of a Bavarian farmer. She came to Britain. Uh, she became a Labour MP initially because she was very much a Europhile. Uh, and she has ended up being, as you probably know, a Euro skeptic. Um, but when she got the brief uh, at the Department of Health, to oversee the independent sector, um, because she's quite quirky and she quite, she likes digging deep and she enjoys the, the intellectual journey and looking at the past and looking past propaganda, I think she got a real feel for the independent sector um, and its history and she realised how much it had gifted the nation when the NHS was created in 1948, that she had a real feel for it. Um, so there are politicians out there I respect. She did a superb job, and there are people like her. But most politicians, uh, and this is true right around the world, um, you know, go with the unquestioning platitudes and statements of their day. And most of them aren't interested dare I say, in things like the history of ideas or institutional memory or where did things really come from? No, like people in business, you know, people in business, they're greedy, uh, they are quite rightly motivated by profit and to use phrases beloved of people like Austrian economics, they, they operate within the language of price. Politicians, of course, are not neutral, giving altruistic creatures. They are similarly pleasure to a lot of people in business. They are greedy, vote-motivated creatures. Um, their signal, their language of price is the vote. If, if they stack up lots of votes, then they get, you know, in the Jaguar motor car, they put their bottoms on the green leather of the House of Commons, and they pontificate at the dispatch box. And if they are put in charge of something like healthcare, then the problem is that often that system, those doctors, those nurses, those care workers – um, the cooks, the cleaners, everyone then starts to mine for data uh, that goes up to the dispatch box in the House of Commons. And that's how most people operate. Um, and uh, But that's not to say that you don't meet politicians who privately question or get a real feel for things and are really interested. And they have an eye out for proactivity and trying to keep ahead and, and to do the right thing. On the on the topic of tax, 
income and wealth. Yes. Merrin Somerset Webb of Money Week put an excellent column out over the weekend uh, FT. I'm just going to quote one brief bit. It's, it's, she's touching on the, the fact that I think her tweet says something along the lines of, before we start taxing the wealthy, we need to understand who, who they are. Um, and it's kind of like, and the whole, her, her whole point is it's a movable feast. So again, this very quick quote from, from the piece. One of the very few careers, by the way, in which you do earn pretty much the same amount every year, regardless of your experience, your success, is politics. All UK MPs earn £79,468 a year, regardless of skill or time served. Members of the US Congress are paid $174,000. This could go some way to explaining why it is that ideologically driven politicians with little experience of working in the private sector are so often surprised by the failure of the poor to vote for more taxes on the rich. And the sort of the almost explicit subtext is... You know, Labour are going after the rich, but the people they're going after aren't actually that rich. And if they are, it's maybe only for a fairly short period of time. Yeah, and I, you know, I think there's all in that. Of course, in Britain, we have the House of Lords. The House of Lords is uh, an astonishing chamber because it has, it's probably in terms of just breadth and wealth of knowledge, expertise, skill, um, it, 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 you know, it's probably... Uh, uh, the, the chamber that's got more gravitas, more expertise than, than any other chamber I can think of in the world. I, I think one thing about the House of Commons and what you've touched on there is that on the Labour side, what you've seen over the last 30 years is more career politicians. So, so you see people who invariably join the Labour Party. You know, They might have been a young socialist. They then become a councillor. They might have been a teacher or a nurse or, or a social worker, and then they enter Parliament. It's a fairly well-trodden site caricature of, but, it, but there's some truth in that. And, and what you therefore have are people who have they've been the councillor and then they get into Parliament. And if they have worked, they tend to work in the public sector. And on the Tory benches, you know, there are an awful lot, dare I say it, of uh, of lawyers, a fair number of accountants, army officers, etc., etc., etc. But it's all become more tramline um, in the course of our adult lives. Um, and what you do not have is the breadth in any of these parties that perhaps they need, given the complexities of the modern world. What do I mean by that? If we were here 100 years ago, you know, the average, for example, male school leaver, what, what are they going to do? They're going to be a, a vicar, an army officer, an accountant or a lawyer. Or if they were going to be blue collar, they were going to go down a mine, build a ship, build a railway, da, 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 da. Now, when you leave school, you know, and I'm a dad of a 13-year-old, nearly 14-year-old girl, um, you know, she hasn't got, you know, 12 different careers she can choose from or sort of well-worn paths. She has literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of avenues of potential and choice for how she's going to earn her money. So it's a very, very odd thing to me that the House of Commons uh, has, it, it appears to me, to have become ever more narrow, you know, and predictable on all these benches in a way that the real world of work has blossomed and flowered and expanded and stretched. Do you see what I mean? There's a sort of contrast there. Well, there's a massive contrast, absolutely. Because, And you're also seeing it in the education 
system, which just is, has not been able to keep up with with new ideas and this very point you're making. Exactly. So uh, what I see is, first of all, I'm you know, I think the average member of parliament the, uh, is well-meaning. I think they work astonishingly long hours. They're often still there till 10 or 11 at night. They, they often, you know, I've got friends across the spectrum uh, who are MPs. I've been staying with a friend of mine who's an MP uh, for a couple of days this week. And we, he was debating whether he could have um, a Sunday afternoon off with his family because of the amount of casework to be done, you know, all the rest of it. And this isn't just because there's an election. So they do work hard. And I think often the public uh, decry, uh, they sort of think they're lazy or, or hired if they're not. But I do think as the, as the real economy blossoms and widens and, and career choices, you know, um, uh, increase almost exponentially now. So I think there is this bizarre narrowing you see in the House of Commons where somehow they're slightly out of kilter with the country. And then that is compounded with sort of ideological prejudices and then the issue you're touching on, which is tax and, and, and how many of them. Because, you know, I mean, for the hours they put in and for the, for the complexity of, of, of the work they do, um, the money they earn is not is not it's not a huge amount. Um, uh, you know, they, they they seem to be yeah out of kilter with the way the real economy is growing in many many ways. Not just the issue of tax and, and what they perceive to be rich. That's my point. It's, one, it's one of, what, sorry to drop one. Yeah, one one of the um the, the phrases I, I use that that probably irritates most of my colleagues and former colleagues most most intensely is work smarter, not harder. I think a lot of people would be happy if um, I, I don't think people are necessarily upset at the the current pay level of MPs. It's more the 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 overstretch in terms of what's expected of them. Um, and this is a very narrow point, but I think you can expand from it. When I worked in a dealing room, um, I wasn't a trader, but I, I worked closely with traders, and it became abundantly clear to me that there were times of the day when they should not be stuck in front of a screen trading because it wasn't going to lead to any productive activity but the culture was you, you sit there from nine till five or whatever it is and you you trade and it, it seems if there's no opportunity for for let's say a productive trade or investment you should go out off and hit the golf course but it's it's this mindset which probably goes back to the victorian age the you know every everyone's there at specific times and you do your your stint and it's kind of like make work provision I think most people would be a lot happier if MPs could, could keep the same pay, but actually there was some management of expectations to what they're actually supposed to be doing. So, and, you know, I agree. and, and of course, the problem, uh, Tim, is that the, this is true in any democracy. Okay, the higher you go up the food chain, the more responsible you become. So that ultimately, to understand Prime Minister's job is very simple. The Prime Minister, their brief is that they are responsible for everything. They are the minister of everything. But that's, that's, that's an absurdity. And it is, but it's, it's also true. So if there's a knife attack on, on a bridge or a pin drops in Sheffield or, or there's the wrong barrier on a motorway in Scunthorpe, then there are questions in the House and ultimately the Prime Minister is... The Prime Minister can never say, I don't know about that. If they do, they'll say, I'll come back, you know, I'll write to you about that. But they are ultimately the response for everything. Now, the big problem for, for, for those very senior 
politicians and, and for the prime minister anywhere. When they're running kind of the ship of state, first of all, they're ultimately there to make judgment calls. Many of the judgment calls they make will only really impact or come to fruition often long after they've left office. One example, whatever you think about high-speed rail, okay, whether you believe in road pricing or any, if, if, if a prime minister now says, yes, go ahead with HS2, they, you're going to be at least two or three prime ministers later until we actually, you know, get to grips with the detail of that and, and the real outcome of it. That's a prime minister's life. Now, the real challenge for, for the senior politicians is because they're working so hard, because in your terms, you know, they're trading long hours, they never get time, and this is the nightmare, they never get time to think and to reflect. I mean, between between us, when I worked in Slovakia, one of the things I encouraged the Slovak prime minister to do, and he did do it, uh, but it's very rare, was to try and take a few hours on a Friday afternoon, um, get a range of magazines, you know, he had the Economist, a whole range of things, get a cup of coffee, and actually, and, and, and turn off the phone, have no advisors, no civil servants, and have some thinking time. And very, 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 very few senior politicians ever do that, ever get thinking time. Usually, they might have a Sunday afternoon off, but they're so knackered, you know. Um, and of course, we know in the world of psychology and creativity, often the best ideas you have are when you just about doze off to sleep, or you're in the shower, when, they, when you have some me time. And this is why often governments, political parties, they run out of ideas. It's because the people at the top are slaving so hard, they're on the treadmill, the hamster wheel so much, that they literally run out of steam and ideas. So to, to, to kind of build in, I think this is true for any entrepreneur, any business leader, try and build in some buffer times where you can really do some reflection and some thinking. Vital. There's an excellent essay by Dominic Cummings, an extended essay. It's quite a long read yep. that I came across a while back. And he, he talks about, it, it, from his experience, this is someone who, who clearly has worked at the sort of the, uh, the coalface of politics. Yep. That he talks about politicians that, that basically spend their whole life on, I think you used the word treadmill, of just going from inane policy announcement to inane policy announcement and then the next policy announcement is 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 to do undo some of the damage from the previous policy announcement and nothing's actually happening but it's it's like the 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 sort of the uh, uh, an impression of activity when actually it's just it's just the, the demands of the news cycle yeah and i think and i think again to get altitude above what dom has said there i think that the, the truth is that even at prime ministerial level very few prime ministers make a really substantial change. So if, if I look back at the last century, I would say it was only really Lloyd George, Clem Attlee and Margaret Thatcher who represented, you know, inflection points or substantive punctuation points. Other politicians fell or other prime ministers sort of fell along inside the wake of those people. So once you had Clem Attlee, you know, you had Harold Macmillan, Tories, 1950s, you've never had it so good. Tories are plowing money into the NHS, they're building 300,000 council houses a year. But the point being that, uh, that Macmillan follows in the wake of Attlee, just as 
Tony Blair absolutely followed in the wake of Thatcher. Thatcher was trusted by the British electorate to open up British industry to more competitive, dynamic global forces. But the Tories were never trusted really with the human services, education, health, social services, all that stuff. So Tony Blair was trusted to take a penny off income tax, introduce tuition fees, bring down the Berlin Wall between the NHS and Britain's independent healthcare sector uh, through the NHS uh, independent sector 2000 Concordat, as it was called, you know, and he started and then introduced academy schools, free schools, and make some of those human services reforms. Okay, but what Blair was doing, and this is where people on the left, the Labour Party, uh, are right, and it's why they're annoyed. What Blair was doing was he was introducing to those human public services things that that were very much in alignment with Margaret Thatcher's sort of classical liberal economic outlook. and But what those key prime ministers would say, I think, be it Lloyd George or be it Clem Attlee or Margaret Thatcher, if they're really, if they were brought together and they were given time to reflect, what they would be saying is, look, history is itself partly path-dependent on the enormous... Um, tides of political economy. And these tides come in and out. They wash in and out over often 200-year cycles between bigger government and smaller government. And we ourselves, yes, we might have been big names, but we ourselves were somewhat corks bobbing on the tide of history. You know, Margaret Thatcher would then talk to you about Friedrich Hayek and, and the Chicago guys and the Austrian school economists and the benefits of enterprise and low taxes and all those things. But what she would also say is, that's what my time demanded. That's what my time required. That's what the electorate wanted. That's why I was re-elected. Someone like Lloyd George, perhaps, would say, look, you know, um, in my years, we had a rising intellectual socialism. We had more of a centralizing state we saw eventually the rise of the Soviet Union. You know, I had to knock some of the, half ed- the harder edges off capitalism. I had to increase a proactive state. Perhaps I didn't always want to do it, but I, I felt I had to. And I had to show leadership because partly I wanted to stave off the Marxist revolution, you know, in, in later in 1926. But their experience of office, they experienced themselves as very big corks because they're Atley, their Thatcher, their Lloyd George, but they experience their lives and what they did. They feel they're nevertheless bobbing on the tide of history. The moon, the world of ideas and political economy that governs their tide, that I think ultimately they feel they have very little control of. So they would simply say, well, I did the best for my reading of my time. And, you know, what's really interesting to me, and this is an area of scholarship I'm fascinated by, it's very rare that you, in the public sector, that you get an institution that we've actually got records of, not over 50 or 70 years like the NHS, but over six or 700 years. And you can really see the vicissitudes of that tide. One of those institutions where we have the record, of course, is the Royal Navy. And there you can see how the Royal Navy has had what I would call more statist periods of history. And they're more, you know, more Austro 
<laughs> privateering periods of history through things like, uh, well, privateering and letters of mark and reprisal and all that. And, and, you know, I think I said to some students last week, you know, you might question, for example, Ken Livingston's introduction of road pricing in London, or there was a big debate some years ago about the toll road, the private toll road in the West Midlands. But in Georgian England in 1741, there were more than 30,000 miles of private toll road. But Margaret Thatcher wasn't around. So if you, you know, if you look at a lot of these issues and the roles of prime ministers and the roles of politicians, the higher you got the food chain, and in those very rare big names that make a really big difference, who pivot us away from one tradition to another, I think that they think of themselves as being corks on the tide of history. It's just that the tides, they go in and out. They oscillate between big government and small government, but they do it over cycles that are several hundred years long. Excellent. Tim, what do you think? Should we go to media picks? I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure Tim is aware of what's to come, but uh, it's not a nasty. It's not a nasty surprise. So we tend to finish off proceedings with a media picks round. So something that you've seen, read, heard uh, recently or less recently that either made an impression uh, in a good or horrific sense, or perhaps both. So the big takeaway for me in the last few months uh, was I went to the BAFTA. Um, uh, launch of that Netflix series Chernobyl. Oh yeah, yeah. This is a particular favourite of Paul's, by the way, and mine. So, so I went and I saw initially that evening with a glass of champagne um, the first two episodes, and then I came back home and I, a week later, when it was actually on the TV, I watched all of it, and it made a huge impression on me. The first thing is, as someone who's lived in Eastern Europe in one of those old school, school sort of, you know, communist department blocks. Um, the thing that really blew me away about Chernobyl was I had never seen a drama um, where there was such an eye for detail. Mm. Uh, and what I mean is every motor car, you know, every larder motor car, every bus, every apartment, every piece of carpet, every chandelier, every telephone was absolutely how life was in communist Russia, communist Czechoslovakia, Poland, you name it. Um, and in fact, when I met the, uh, uh, when I met the writer and some of the stars at the BAFTA launch, I said, Oh, you met Craig Mazin. How fantastic. Yeah. I, I, I actually asked the writer, um, how was it that, that I, you know, I'd never seen such an eye for detail on any subject. And he said to me, it was lovely. He said, he said, Tim, the guys who did costume, and the guys who did the sets, they weren't just perfectionists. He said, you mentioned Lada car. They didn't just get the right car. You'll even find that the right tyres were on that car. Oh, my God. Uh, never, yeah, OMG. He said, I've never worked with such a level of, of a team that was such perfectionists. And for me, what was fascinating, I really felt that. As someone who knows about what a Lada car looks like or a communist flat or whatever, they were obsessives and bless them for that because I love that sort of quirky historical detail in movies. Secondly, I did not appreciate until I watched uh, Chernobyl uh, the, the, the implications for all of us in Europe, how close we came oh, to the yeah. meltdown of those other reactors and how inhabitable 
not just Eastern Europe, but parts of Western Europe potentially would have become. And I had no idea of the economic impact of it in it in it sort of compounding if this is a problem of compounding the further woes of of the socialist economy. You know, I Chernobyl's role in helping to um, bring down the wall. To bring down the whole thing, you know, mm. the economic scale of it. So that, and, and the last thing is, you know, I again, there are there are scenes in there of of kind of radiation sickness and people dying. I think the like of which I've never seen on the small screen. I've never seen such a big film produced for such a small screen, and it was amazing and it blew me away. And it, I loved it for the detail, the insights of political economy. Um, and 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 the, and the history lesson it was amazing i don't think you like you don't get any any contrasting view from either paul certainly myself the, what what i admired about it i mean i binge watched the whole thing so we were discussing it a few months ago when it was when it was launched and i i snuck off and binge watched the whole thing so i could watch it before paul could <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but for me, I mean, I mean, clearly it was is a drama, you know, as bad as dramatic as you can get, and this is enormously powerful metaphor for let's call it what it is, sort of you know the 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 malign workings of a of a of a, of a big state, sort of state controlled economy. But it's it's the quality of the writing. So clearly, you had this this massive dramatic proposition anyway. But there's there's a there's a quote I thought was so awesome that I used it in a commentary. So this is a quote from the uh, from the show. Um, an RBMK reactor uses uranium-235 as fuel. Every atom of U-235 is like a bullet travelling at nearly the speed of light, penetrating everything in its path, woods, metal, concrete, flesh. Every gram of U-235 holds over a billion trillion of these bullets. That's in one gram. Now Chernobyl holds over three million grams, and right now it's on fire. Winds will carry radioactive particles across the entire continent. Rain will bring them down on us. That's three million billion trillion bullets in the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat. Most of these bullets will not stop firing for 100 years, some of them not for 50,000 years. OMG, OMFG. Yeah, exactly. And there was that incredible scene early on in Chernobyl where uh, the local committee meet, and they meet under the sort of... Uh, the bronzed impression of, I think, Lenin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this committee, what, what I found funny about the whole thing, uh, the committee were almost, although they were hardline socialists and they showed huge deference to Marx and particularly to Lenin, and they trusted the state. And this is what this meeting was about, you know, about trusting the party and trusting the state and we're all going to be all right. Um, it did slightly remind me of a caricature of sort of, it's like the old farty meeting of the Tory party. You do know what I mean? And, 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 and you know, it reminded me of that phrase, you know, uh, uh, about, um, about Blair when uh, I think Cameron said of him once, you were the future once. Mm. What came across was that th- this committee of socialists, you know, sort of 80 years before or, or 70 years before, they had been the future once. Mm. But now they were just a bunch of completely out of touch you know, reactive ne'er-do-wells who were not looking after their society. It's like, it's like, it's like the Labour shadow cabinet. Well, there we are. But, it, you know, it, it, they were throwbacks, bless them. You know, uh, I, you know, obviously Corbyn, bless him, he's obviously a bit of a throwback in his own way as well. But it, 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 it was just, you know, that world of sort of 
Hegelian dialectics, I think, where everything becomes its opposite in the end. In that wonderful scene, they had become, you know, old farts completely removed from reality. They were no longer radical in any way. They were more conservative than the British Blue Rinse Brigade in the Tory party. Do you know what I mean? And, 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 um, and, and the big takeaway, and I think both of you will appreciate this, sort of for me in my bizarre world, uh, in my head, um, it took me back, actually Chernobyl took me back to the socialist calculation debate in the 1920s and early 30s between Ludwig von Mises and Oscar Langer, where, you know, Mises so eloquently described the importance of the language of price and, you know, profit as a signal, you know, uh, indicating, uh, well, containing huge amounts of knowledge for economic agents, no ministry, no central planner can ever know. And, Actually, Chernobyl made me reflect on that great, that most important debate in the 20th century, uh, you know, and a, de- a debate, a debate that is insufficiently um, with people with which people are insufficiently familiar. Exactly. Like if, if there was ever an economic de- debate uh, that uh, that that was totemic of the the economic debate of the Cold War. It was the socialist calculation debate of the 20s and 30s. And quite frankly, if you read Oscar Langer's uh, wrong-headed thinking, you know, his parlous uh, views about uh, state planning and, and his belief in it, well, you know, the logical outcome of Langer's work was always going to be massive mess-ups like Chernobyl because central planning, you know, doesn't work. Uh, and so for me, uh, when I was watching all of it, I was just thinking of that debate. And in a way, it was in terms of radiation, it underlined, you know, in chaos and death for lots of people and for the collapse of the system. For me, it reminded me of the veracity and the truth of Ludwig von Mises' insights decades and decades before. The saddest thing of all, of course, Mises should have been understood at the time to be right. Uh, his his argumentation was sound. State planning was never going to work, and it was always going to end up with things like Chernobyl and all the disasters that befell the Soviet Union. Have you have you listened to the podcast, the, the Chernobyl podcast? It's fantastic. No, I will do that. Yeah, foundation. I'll do that. It's really excellent. I, w- I won't mention anything from it, but you, you get a few extra details. But I'm very grateful for this extra detail that you've just given us from Craig Mason about the, the tyres, because I knew that the number plates were correct and they'd gone to that sort of detail. But, you know, I'm, I'm astounded that they went further than that. But it was a beautifully written and just one of the most amazing series that you're ever going to see. It was. Sure. I mean, even, I mean, I spoke to the, cost, the guys who, um, uh, who did the costumes Costume is interesting to me because my mother's godfather uh, was a guy called Willie Clarkson. He has a blue plaque up to him in Wardour Street in Soho in London. And Willie was the greatest costumier of Victorian and Edwardian London. Uh, I read a little while ago the official history of MI6, and I discovered it was my mother's godfather as a costumier who did the first disguises six in, in you know around the time of the first war how like, brilliant uh, yeah i don't know quite what he did but i know that his first mission was to take the chief of mi6 and t- 
turn him into someone so he, that he looked like a Belgian. He probably, <laughs> you know, he probably just he probably just attached, you know, a Poirot esque um, yeah. moustache. But but that whole world of costume is fascinating, and you know, because it was my mother's god godfather, it's always been interesting. So I met at this reception. I met at the party one of the costumers, and she said to me, she said, you know, when you're looking, for example, at the firefighters. Um, in in the Netflix Chernobyl, um, those outfits that they're wearing, they're real. Okay, they actually sourced from across the former Soviet space actual firefighters' kit, circa the mid nineteen eighties. And one of the things I think that's you know when you're watching those scenes, you almost feel without having an eye or an understanding of costumes, you almost feel, don't you, without knowing, I have no idea what a Soviet firefighter's uniform looks like circa 1986. But it feels authentic. But it feels authentic, and therefore there was a double learning loop. Even though I don't know what they look like, I think they probably would like look like this, and they did, because they were the real thing. And I really, really, really think that those filmmakers, by going that extra mile, made something i use i don't use the phrase with any form of media but it really was historic it was as i as i said to them you've made something that is perfect yes i think that's uh that's a good way to put it for sure so so uh tim price then what what have you got i i I can't follow that so i'm gonna i'm just i'm just gonna endorse it yes brilliant um well mine is going to be well obviously you've You've got the Chernobyl podcast if you want to um, have a listen to that. That's, I think, something I've recommended before. But I, I'd like to to recommend a book that uh, Alan Steele, who was on the show, recommended. And it's a book called Loon Shots. And it's by Safi Bakal, which is an absolutely fantastic book. It's um, It's about how crazy ideas can change the world. And it's just so beautifully written and has some... Ve- I would I would encourage anyone who's managing any size of people to read it because it, uh, it has some very practical information in there as well as having a brilliant uh, breakdown of, of some of the biggest life-changing um, technology and and how it came about and and if I remember correctly, Paul, because I, I I got a copy after Alan was on the show. Does he not distinct the author not distinguish between the the abilities and talents required to have the idea, and then separately the people who then need to go and make it happen? Yes, and it's it's kind of protecting the people who need to have these crazy ideas and keep them separate in a company. And this was mm. something that. Steve Jobs in his early years didn't appreciate so he and it also comes comes back in some ways to Austrian economics which says that everybody in a company um even the man who's sweeping the floor in the restaurant it has as much value as the chef who's cooking the food because well that's a, that's a Mises quote isn't it it's well I, actually I, I I I thought that was a Rory I Sutherland believe, quote but I think he got quote. it from Mises yeah well he must have done I guess but it it, it comes down to that because you have these these guys, um, and it's also what's also interesting is is that if you have companies that get beyond a certain size, then and it, maybe this is something that that we could learn from the NHS, 
when it gets beyond a certain size, you then have to kind of start separating. It, it separates how people work. When you get groups bigger than 150 working on a project, then everybody changes from wanting to save their backside to actually deciding, come on, why don't we try this? Because this might work. Okay, it might fail. But if it works, it will change the company. But if it doesn't, um, you know, so you have this this mentality with small startups and smaller groups that's completely different to bigger companies. And it's why bigger companies actually end up failing, um, which is, it's just so well written. And it's information that, you know, I, I think you, you have to pass on to whoever is making big decisions out there, especially your children. Um, because it's not the sort of stuff you get taught in schools. There's a, a cracking quote from one of my favourite scientists, Professor Albert Bartlett, who, who died a few years ago. Um, and his, his quote is, for any entity beyond maturity, any further growth is either obesity or cancer. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I, you know, I think that, um, I mean, I think that one of my stock questions to students uh, is what is what is the most significant invention of the last 150 years? And you know, and they all then talk about computers or television or the jet engine or whatever. For me, the most significant invention is the modern structures of management. It's basically the modern world of management because management is the means which enables all this creativity to be unleashed. Uh, and, 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 and to be made real world and to be delivered to us. And I find it intriguing that most of the mechanisms of modern management uh, were actually invented between 1890 and 1920. Um, and that now, because of the coming fourth industrial revolution and the information, the, the digital world and all the rest of it, that, that it's very clear that we're going to need fundamentally new forms of management, new forms of leadership, and new ways of working. Um, uh, and that, and the, you know, just as we, you know, with the spinning jenny and the and the and, and, and the world of the division of labour, the world that Adam Smith described, uh, but that it took us probably to the 1840s to come up with the phrase industrial revolution. So for years we were doing. Adam Smith described certain features, but we didn't have the label, oh, we're in the industrial revolution for some time. Um, and that what fell from that industrial revolution were all kinds of structures and mechanisms of, of management that really didn't come about till at least a century after Adam Smith died. It seems to me that now with this new world, we um, have got new technology, we're entering a new industrial phase. And again, there are new forms of management and new insights, so they're going to fall from that. But, but I'm not yet convinced that we have even the beginning of a handle on the sort of management structures, organizations that are going to fall from, for example, to use one example, a world where we have the Internet of Things. But I find all that absolutely fascinating, and I love this subject. Brilliant. Well, I... I... You know, I, I'm sure you'd love the book, um, but uh, obviously that's why I recommended it. But I was very grateful to Alan Steele for recommending it in the first place. But what was partly was what was very surprising was how someone who's revered as Steve Jobs in yes. his very early career had very little idea about how to, how a company should be run. 
And he was very derogatory to to people who were the designers. And to the point where he, he would, I think, make them, you know, he would call them clowns or something. I mean, he was just like verbally very rude to them. Even when you when you read when you read the I forget who the author was, but the quite celebrated biography, Steve Jobs frankly comes across as a big shit. Yeah. So I, I, you know, it, so he, he no one no one can take away his sort of creative and and commercial success, but he was not a pleasant person. Not in, especially not in the early days, and he just didn't understand the value of the pe- of, of certain people within his company. And I've, but to his credit, he learned that. And he then understood it and then applied it and embraced it, which is why he became successful. So that's why I think, and that's just one example in the book, that's why I think it's such a brilliant read because you you, you see sort of firsthand how some of these ideas that we may take for granted these days yeah. would never have come about. You know, they, they were, it was very close to, you know, that as as he says that like in the drug world, um, drug companies, some of the best ideas have to die three deaths. So in other words, mm. something that you might say, oh, yeah, that's that's really obviously a brilliant idea. Of course that's going to work. But no, they, they all get kind of like even every brilliant idea gets shot down and is dead mm. three times before it has to come back up and be proven to be a good idea. And so there, there are many situations and it's very difficult to, to find them um, where something absolutely life-changing has been buried because management has not seen the value in it. Um, and, and so I think you're absolutely right, um, Professor Tim, when you say, you know, how management has changed and, and needs to change in order to, to make sure that these ideas flourish. It, I mean, and, you know, most of the principles, the tools, the methods that are used in management today, they're actually legacies from 100 years. You know, pay for performance, capital budgeting, task design, div- divisionalization, brand management, all, the, all this stuff. That, most of that was, was invented prior to 1920. But, and the problem today is that, I mean, I think there are three big things that have changed, okay? So I think change has changed. When I was a kid, my dad went to buy a TV, a color TV, you know, something Sony Trinitron. That TV would be reliably there for 15 years. If I go out with my daughter and I go and get a TV today, next weekend, dad, it's out of date. It doesn't get this app. Okay. So change has changed. Change is accelerating. It's exponential. It's disruptive. You know, think of internet connections, data storage, mobile devices connected to the internet, genome sequencing. Change is number one. Two, I would say we're living in now an era of ever more kind of hyper competition and creative destruction that all links to lower barriers to entry, adaptability, innovation. And as a result, organizations have to be much more creative and inventive. And the other thing is that knowledge is becoming a key commodity. Um, you know, it, yes, we all love gold and, and you know, and there's petrochemicals had a huge impact on on the globe in the last year with the, uh, with the in the last century with the internal combustion engine but knowledge itself is becoming you know such an important commodity and no one has a monopoly on wisdom and who knew you know that in the 1960s 70s and 80s all those kind of californian geeks with long hair t-shirts what were they doing in the back room they were building computers they were living in this anarchy and from that anarchy of computers has come the order where we can all talk to each other and all these machines are connected so the real challenge i think for for management is now 
how can you build, lead, and develop organizations that change as fast as change? Two, how do you build organizations where innovation is the work of everybody? And three, how do you build organizations, how do you lead them, where people bring the gifts of their creativity, innovation, and their passion? But what's good news is that if you're a classical liberal or an Austrian school or you know, wherever you're coming from, if you're a free marketeer, then then those three questions, those three themes of change has changed, creative disruptions and knowledge becoming a commodity, they're sort of very, very markety, Austro-economics themes. So in a nutshell, I think that management or the world of management 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever we're moving into is going to be much more consonant with um, a decentralized bottom-up world. You know, it's about emergent strategy. It's about all, you know, managing from the outside in. It's about empowering people. It's about learning. It's about being open. It's about being adaptive, resilient. All the things that we teach at business schools as opposed to that world of 100, 200 years ago that was much more top-down, big bureaucracy, fixed strategies, managers from the outside in, autocratic, closed, ignorant, rigid, unsustainable, because that's what organizations almost were a hundred years ago. So the, so, so the world of management today, and I think where we're going, is much more consonant of a much more decentralized sort of bottom-up world of management and therefore political economy, dare I say it. Fantastic. Well, look, Professor Tim Evans, thank you so much for coming on the show. If somebody wanted to get in contact with you, um, what would be the best way to do that? Uh, so uh, the best way to do it is, uh, first of all, I have a Twitter account, which is at Prof T Evans. Uh, secondly, um, I have an email address, uh, which is t.evans at mdx dot ac dot uk i'm professor of business and political economy at middlesex university in north london we're the only institution that's won the queen's award for international enterprise twice this century we have a huge campus in north london we have a campus in dubai we're in malta we're in mauritius we have offices in africa the far east um we're a pretty global brand um and we're one of the world's top 15 most diverse universities. So I have colleagues and students from 160 countries around the world. And it's huge fun working there. Sounds amazing. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's been absolutely brilliant. And we'd love to have, I'm sure we're going to be expanding on these topics in the future. So it'd be great to have you back on the show. Please, anytime. I love doing this sort of thing. Um, It's an absolute delight and pleasure for me. Uh, So never hesitate to call. I will be here. Thanks, Tim. We're very grateful for that. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Fantastic. Tim Price, thank you so much, as always. Pleasure. Just remains for me to say thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you for all your feedback on Twitter, on all the podcast providers that you've been listening to. It's absolutely amazing. We absolutely love it. And we do read all the comments. So thank you so much. Have a fantastic week and we'll catch you next time.
This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.